spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. There's no need to steal it when you can't get it for free. It's episode 375 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, we're going to be pulling a heist this week because it is the return of Leverage. That's right, Leverage Redemption now streaming on IMDb TV. And I got to talk to so many members of that wonderful cast. No, Wiley's on the show this week. Beth Ricegraff, Christian Kane, and so many more are going to be talking about the return of this show. And, you know, where does Leverage go from here after being gone for so long? We'll talk about that and a whole bunch more. Also, Serena Valentino going to join me this week. You know, she's the author of of the Disney Villains book series. This is book eight. We're going to talk to her about Cold Hearted and, you know, bringing Lady Tremaine's story to life. I think going to be really, really interesting. Plus, the Marvel's What If trailer dropped this week. Got to talk about that and a couple of other very interesting trailers. The fact that Marvel and DC going to be skipping San Diego Comic-Con at home again this year. Resident Evil Infinite Darkness is out on Netflix. I'll review that and so much more coming up on the show this week as well. But let's start. By talking to the cast of Leverage Redemption. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jay Taylor from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You don't need to pull your own heist to watch the new episodes of Leverage Redemption. They're streaming right now for free on IMDb TV. I was so excited to get a chance to talk to this amazing cast returning to the show and some of the new cast members as well. So let's start off by talking about Christian Kane, Elliot Spencer himself. Beth Ricegraff, who plays Parker, and new to the show, Elise Shannon, who plays Brianna Casey. Here's my conversation with them about the first batch of episodes of Leverage Redemption. Good to see you, James. Hey, Thanks James. for having us, brother. How's everybody doing? I'm doing good. It's been it's crazy to believe that it's almost been 10 years since we've had a new episode of Leverage. So, Christian and Beth, I want you to talk about that moment. You're all back in a room together. You realize this was really happening, and you were back in those roles. What was that like? It was super surreal. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it was a family coming back together. A lot of you know, I, I've I've been fortunate to where I've been on a few shows where there's a, really a great cast, but in this one is, you know, I, I've told this story before. Like we we worked 13, 14 hours a day, you know, on the first on the first series, and then be, you, you we're not tired of each other. We go out and have dinner that night before we got up and work together the next day again. You know, I mean, we just, we just are really, really a, truly a family and that doesn't always happen. And you don't, you know, not necessarily everybody likes each other or gets along with each other. We actually love each other. And so to, to have the family back together, where we watch out for someone. I mean, lit, literally I'm going too much here, but literally like when it's Beth's turn, when it's Parker's turn to shine, everybody backs up and lets her take the spotlight. And usually people are fighting for the spotlight because they want that thing. And we've all been like that. And we've been like that since 2007. So it's uh, it's really great to get the family back together because people truly care about what we're doing, who we are, and how we, we react to the others. And at least for you, you actually get to kind of jump right in and have a very personal connection with one of the members of the team. So just how close are Brianna and her foster brother, Alec? You know, I think they're pretty close. I mean, I, I'm sure there's a little bit of sibling sibling animosity and rivalry and, and stuff like that. But I mean, anytime you feel, uh, anytime you're cracking jokes on another, you, you just, you know how much they love each other inside. And I, I think 
you know, the crazy part is, is that I think Brianna, although she is so excited to be a part of this new team, misses Harbison just as much as, you know, everyone else. And, and he's a, a big part of, not that she'd say it, what she hopes to be someday. Likewise, I mean, me as an actress and Aldis as an actor, the same applies. I mean, I missed him just as much as everybody else when, when you know, he would duck in or, or go work or, or duck out and go work on other things. But sheesh, it, it's been a dream. And Aldis is like a great big bro on and off screen. I could see that. I could totally yeah. see how that would be the case. Now, Beth, for you, it seemed like as I'm watching the episodes, I'm like, nobody's more excited to be back in this team than Parker is clearly, but at the same time, <laughs> does actually having Brianna be a part of this team add a little bit more of a sense of responsibility for her and maybe make things a little bit more personal for her as well? Oh, heck yeah. I think, you know, what I was going to say, even in the table read, it was like the moment everybody stepped back into those roles, something clicked and it was phenomenal because everybody was so their character and Brianna coming in, it Hardison is entrusting, you know, this group, but especially Parker with minding his little sis. And it's a big, scary thing in a way for Parker, although she's evolved and grown and running crews with Elliot and Hardison and, you know, able to grift without completely stabbing somebody, uh, you know, all the time. But there's still moments of her that are like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, I, I don't think I did my job most responsible way here out of how am I going to be okay with this and Hardison really just calms Parker and is like you got this and ultimately she knows that and Elise and I had we found some fun opportunities actually to bounce things off of each other and I'm so excited knock on wood we get to do this more because the more we played the more we found and you know the fact that Elise I found mischief with Brianna the way Parker has mischief and like she's kind of up for anything when it comes to certain things and I just love what we found with her and the whole team obviously does too so uh it's been it's been a lot of fun no doubt about that now Christian I don't know if it's just me or what but you had some great action scenes before but now from what I've seen it feels like you guys are really kind of taking things up a notch in redemption a little bit so how much fun was it for you and did you all actually talk about bringing something different to the table this season when you actually got to get your hands dirty a little bit? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that I've actually t I've actually taken away some stuff to play other characters because Elliot's always been near and dear to my heart. And he has so many different fighting skills that when I went to go play something else and I had to do fight scenes, I didn't want him to be I didn't want them to be as good as Elliot Spencer because Elliot Spencer, in my eyes, is the best. Right. So it was fun. It's actually exactly the opposite because I, I got now there's all, all the tools were out there. I got to use whatever I wanted. You know what I mean? I used props. I used this and that. I used any kind of fighting style that I wanted to. So it, it completely opened up and it was really fun to get back to that character. Cause other times I'd be like, okay, so it's here, here. And then I'll throw an elbow. And I'm like, wait, that character doesn't throw an elbow. That's Elliot Spencer. And with Elliot, I got to do it all. But uh, you know, there's a, there was a thing around a poll. I don't know if it's legit, but we did 77 episodes of leverage and there was 102 fights. And literally, I think Dean Devlin, our executive producer and, uh, and, and creator of the show, he came up to me and said, we're on poise to beat that this season. You know what I mean? Like, like if we went, you know, so we, I think we had more fights this season than anything. And I'm not a spring chicken anymore, man. So those, it takes me a while to get out of bed <laughs> now, but it was a lot of fun. And just to, uh, to, to use different things. And, and, and now they know, uh, I believe they know how to, to, to write something, which is 
they just go Elliot fights and then we go do the stuff. So it's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it kind of saves on paper a little bit too there. So it's good for you saving the environment and well, being exactly. I'm, sa- I'm, I'm saving the environment. By well done. Punches. You're absolutely right. Thank well you. done. Thank excellent. You. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, at least for you, obviously this show, again, it's been 10 years since we've had a new episode and you're the young, you're the young buck of the group. But do you actually feel like that makes Brianna even more of an asset? Maybe she's got a little bit more different skills than some of the other team members. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, you know, mentioned it a little bit earlier, but just the way she was socialized and the different types of technology that were around and that you're, I mean, nowadays babies are being raised on iPhones. I mean, just mm-hmm. the understanding of technology is vastly different, even from like what I grew up with, like, I still remember a razor flip phone, but I think Brianna's bringing that like baby in front of an iPhone sort of sensibility to to the crew. And I think she's proud about it, but I think it, it also gives her like the confidence to uh, make a little trouble and, and think that she can get away with it as well. And sometimes she gets stopped in her tracks for sure. But yeah, I, I think that's what, what she's propping up. And it, even with her older brother, like you know, hacking has all of a sudden become a classic thing to do. Whereas, uh, you know, more of this engineering and problem solving, you know, creating technology is is what what she's after. Did you just really? say I remember a razor flip iPhone or a razor? Phone? I sure did. I remember a razor. <laughs> I was just gonna say I loved your reaction to when she said that, Christian. Like, wow. Now I we got all my. Feel I learned old. I got my first. I got. I learned I got my first role when I when they paged me and I used a. Uh, a pay phone that's at least what that is is a phone that's stuck in the street and you put a quarter into it so, and then you have to actually dial we also used to have to stick antennas on the top of our cars for our cell phones too i don't know if you guys remember yeah. that or not but that yeah. was actually a thing too yeah. but, but i'm old school i'm old school i remember razors there you go all right. <laughs> well we'll all find out what that new technology is on july 9th imdb tv with leverage redemption guys thank you so much for joining me i appreciate it thank, thank you so you much so for much. having us man not done yet, not by a long shot, because how can you pull a heist without the amazing Gina Bellman, who plays Sophie Devereaux? I'm going to talk to her. And again, new to the cast and very, very important, too, by the way, Noah Wiley, who plays Harry Wilson. Let's talk to them about what's coming up in these episodes as well. Hi, James. Hi, James. Hey, Gina, Noah, how are you doing? Really well, thanks. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Gina, it's kind of been a while for you guys. And, and sometimes in shows like this, when you see shows come back after after a little bit of time, you you know, the gang just gets back together and it's just kind of business as usual. But we even saw in the trailer, there's a little hesitation on Sophie's part. She says she's retired in the trailer, but without spoiling anything, could there maybe be a little bit more to it than that? Well, I think the show definitely starts with her at a point where she's not expecting any of this to kick off. And it's one of the things I love about the opening episode is that everything happens quite accidentally in a kind of chaotic sort of mess. You know, the the team are taking her out. They want to have an adventure. They want to have, they're going to pull off a theft just for an adrenaline rush. And then they, you know, they accidentally stumble upon this evil billionaire that needs taking down and then meet Mr. or Mr. Wilson over there who basically needs a home. He needs a home for his like journey of redemption. And I think that Sophie's ready to, she recognizes in in Harry that he's, he's on a journey. And I think she sort of identifies with him and that she sees herself on a similar trajectory. So it all just happens quite seamlessly from then on. And Noah, for you, you're actually, it's not just your character that's coming into an established situation. It's you as well with this, this cast has been together forever. I know you worked with Christian before in the past on another series, but what's it like kind of being the new face 
on such an established show, and especially with the cast that's been together for so long? It's intimidating, you know, it's first day of school and you want to be liked and they're all the cool kids and you want to figure out how best to sort of fit in and you don't want to uh, seem like you're trying too hard or that you're trying to upstage anybody. You want everybody to, to, to like you and trust you and believe that you're there just to help everybody be better. And that takes a little getting used to, but this was a more familial group than most because Dean Devlin is such a loyal guy. He keeps the same people in his employ forever. So it's a little bit like walking in and knowing half the people and getting to meet the other half. Everybody was great. Really great. So I, it kind of got me wondering though, like if you had come in from the very beginning and Gene, I'll, I'll ask both of you this, but I'm kind of curious, do you think Harry would have fit in with the original team as well when you guys kind of first started if you guys had stumbled upon harry right away do you think that would have worked out well how many alpha males can <laughs> <laughs> well that's why i'm asking <laughs> i mean um i i think that it's really pertinent for our times now and this isn't going to be a satisfying answer for you because i know you want some kind of like sort of sensational answer but i actually i'm really interested in the kind of legal stuff that harry wilson's character brings to the table because i think it's very much it very much reflects like where we're living right now you know I, I i've said this before you know people were just signing away stuff all the time and ticking boxes and giving up our data and giving up our privacy and i think that you know were these issues were these issues 12 years ago as prevalent as they are now probably not i think his role I'm not sure that Nate could have handled uh, such another alpha man around Sophie in the past, but I think that Harry's role as a kind of legal expert is very pertinent to what's happening in the world right now. I sort of think that in a lot of ways, the last show was about uh, vengeance and revenge and avenging angels doing the Lord's work but it came from a place of real pain and, and, a, and a sense of wanting to, to get back what was taken from you. And this, and Harry's motivated by justice, which is slightly different than vengeance. It's about trying to make everybody feel equitable about the situation in the end and having as much of the wound healed as possible in whatever way that gets defined, right? And it, it just, I think that would be the biggest difference, I'd say, between those two men and, and, and these two versions of this same show. I would agree with that. I do feel that that's the, I mean, I, I love the fact that, um, you know, when you're in the moment and you're filming, you're not, you're not seeing the bigger picture as much as you are on reflection, reflection when you've wrapped. But I think that that's very true. I think that, yeah, exactly that. The last season was much more about kind of punishing and, and you know, vengeance, like Noah said. And this is more, it's more sort of hopeful. It's more about addressing the balance, giving people a little hope, giving people some power back. And um, I think that's a nice kind of segue. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me this week. I appreciate it. Time and pleasure. Thank you. You know, in some respects, I feel like leverage has been gone forever, but then you watch this show and it feels like you never left these characters. And then you've got the addition of Brianna and Noah, and they just bring something to the show that really just kickstarts it into this modern day. And there really is a bit of a difference between the last time we saw this crew and seeing them now as far as time and technology and things like that are concerned. And the show addresses that in such an amazing way. This is such a fun show. I can't wait for you guys to dive into it. Now streaming on IMDb TV, you're definitely going to want to sit down and get ready for a binge watch of Leverage Redemption. 
Again, thank you so much to the folks at IMDb and Amazon for letting me talk to this great cast of Leverage Redemption. Up next, here's something else you're going to want to watch. Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. My spoiler-free review of the new Netflix series is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Zombies have entered the White House. No, that's not a joke. That actually happens in Resident Evil Infinite Darkness from Netflix, the new animated anime series has finally arrived, and I want to give you my spoiler-free review of this thing. I know it's out. I know it's been out for a couple of days, but I still don't want to spoil it in case you haven't gotten a chance to see it yet. Now, remember, this takes place in the early to mid-2000s. We, we see some scenes from the year 2000 on fast-forward to 2006 for the current story, and it basically follows a, a dueling story about a U.S. Army operation in Panamstan that didn't go so well. And then you fast forward to the current day, which is 2006 in this instance. And there's this weird hacking incident that's happened. The lights are going off inside the white house and all of a sudden zombies show up. So that's basically the, the gist of what's going on here, trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. But there's way more to this story than just that. And that that's just basically, basically me glossing over the synopsis, which you can get it down in nerdypodcast.com. Before I dive into what I thought of the actual story, I wanted to say visually, this is a just a striking, striking looking series. It is an amazing visual ser- series. And that's, you know, credit to the folks at Krabico and that did such an amazing job just animating this thing from start to finish. I mean, everyone involved in this thing that had anything to do with the visuals did a fantastic job. So even if you're not a fan of what ends up being the story, you got to admit that visually this thing is just absolutely stunning and some great action sequences in here as well. And I know what you're thinking. If you're a longtime listener to this show, you're probably thinking, why on earth are you reviewing this and watching it? You don't like anything with zombies in it. And that is true. However, this looked interesting to me. And I thought, well, you know, Resident Evil isn't just about zombies, right? There's always more to it than that. And I'm glad I gave the show a chance because there's definitely more than just the zombies and the mo- whatever you want to call them, the monsters. Then there, there's way more to the story than just that. And this is almost as much of a political thriller as it is a zombie story, quite frankly. And yes, there's obviously horror elements that come into this as well. So if you're looking at this as just a purely like zombie type story, you're not going to get that. You're going to get much more of a deep story than just that. And you get some really good backstories on some of these characters as well, especially Leon's character who's played by Nick Apo Apostolides. And of course, you've also got Jason who's played by the amazing Ray Chase. And Shen Mei has an amazing story too voiced by Jonah Zhao and a, a really good voice cast in this series that that does an incredible job at really driving this story forward, especially Leon and Jason's characters and their interactions together are just really, really good. But the one thing that I will say story-wise that, that maybe you'll call this a criticism, maybe you won't as you approach this series, but to me anyway, it was painfully obvious from the beginning, what the motive was in this in this story, like where it was to me, where it was going ultimately was very ob- obvious 
in the first episode. Now, this is four episodes, about 20, 25 plus minutes each. So it's a really quick and easy binge. It's almost like watching uh, a really good animated movie. But I will say that for me anyway, I figured out, you know, who I, it was obvious to me who was behind everything. And it was obvious to me what the motive was for that. But even in knowing that, it was the, okay, well, how do we get there aspect of it that I was still interested in. So even if you figure it out in the very, very early on, like I did, don't check out because there's a lot more to uncover because there's all, there's other plot details in the story that you will not get to see that are actually quite good. If you go ahead and skip out of that and say, well, I already know what's going to happen. What's going to happen. Who cares? You you'll care. If you give it that chance, I also feel like we could have gotten a little bit more from Claire Redfield's character, who's played by Stephanie Panicello. I feel like I could have seen more of what of her aspect of this story, and I didn't get as much of that as I would have liked. There was some setup there, but I don't really feel like we quite dove in as much as we could. Now, would that have taken away from some of the good parts of this overall story? Yeah, it probably would have. So it's almost like pick which one you want to see more of, right? For me, I wanted to see a little bit more of what Claire was working on, but I also didn't want that to come at the expense of something else that was really, really cool. And I really can't say much without spoiling anything. So there, there's a push and pull there as well. But the story of the Mad Dogs and what really happens in Panamstan, they really, really dig into that heavy. And that is a very, very interesting part of this story. And just, I think that Leon's character in particular is one that I think you you really root for because he's like the ultimate good guy in this story, right? And, and you don't always get ultimate good guys in any stories anymore. And it's not that he's by the book. It's just that he's the guy that you always are going to count on to do the right thing ultimately, right? Even if that means doing something very, very difficult. So I like the political intrigue. In this story, I like what ultimately ended up being the motive for what was going on, even though I figured it out really early. And another reason that that wasn't necessarily a bad thing was because the way this so this series ends after the fourth episode, there's something that happens that I there that is the thing I didn't see coming is what ultimately ends up being a conflict between two of the characters in this story. And I will say this, and, and this is not a I don't think this is a spoiler anyway. This story's not over, and there are some very interesting Easter eggs in this story. There's a couple of them in particular that you really got to pay attention to, but if you're a Resident Evil fan, I will say this. If you are a fan of the games, you will notice. <laughs> you will notice the two big Easter eggs. There's other ones too, but there's two really big ones that are just going to jump right out at you if you're a Resident Evil fan. But if, even if you're not like a diehard Resident Evil fan... As a story in a vacuum on its own, I feel like this is still a pretty darn good story with a good voice cast and a really good visual presentation for Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. So, again, don't see Resident Evil and think that if you don't know Resident Evil, you can't appreciate this show. Are you going to need to know a little bit about Raccoon City? Yeah, Google it. You know, if, if you're not familiar with, with Raccoon City, Google it. It's, it's a quick, you know, it's a quick read up to be able to prepare for what's happening in this story. So that's the only thing that you really absolutely 100% need to know more about to be able to enjoy this. But other than that, hey, I liked it. 
I wasn't expecting to actually like it as much as I did. Is it a perfect story? By no means, but there's there's a lot of good intrigue there. There's not a ton of like jump scares or anything I didn't feel like, so there wasn't like the, the cheap tricks to try and keep you interested. The story keeps you interested, and the promise of what's to come, I think, keeps you interested as well. So make sure you're binge-watching Resident Evil Infinite Darkness right now on Netflix. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. Up next, a very special edition of what we're reading. We're going to be talking about Disney villain series, Cold Hearted. Yeah, it's a very different type of Cinderella story. We'll talk to the author, Serena Valentino, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Alex Irvine, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Make sure you know there's a whole series of books based on the Disney villains. This is actually book eight now. Of the Disney villain series Cold Hearted, which is available right now following Lady Tremaine's story. Just happened to be talking to the author of those great books and this story in particular this week. It's Serena Valentino. Serena, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So it's crazy that we're already on the eighth book in this Disney villain series. And anytime you talk to an actor... They always say that it's more fun to play the villain. But as an author, would you say it's also more fun to write the villain? It's absolutely more fun to write the villains, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, you take a look at the original animated Disney classic films, the villains really aren't explored. You know, they're there to cause trouble and strife for our heroines, right? So for me, it's like this opportunity to really explore, like, who these people are and and why they did what they did. I have a blast writing writing for the villains. They're absolutely more fun to write. So what is it about these Disney villains in particular that makes them so interesting? And how do you actually approach telling their stories? The first question I ask myself is why they, you know, did what they did in, in the animated classic film. And that's something I did, like, as a kid. You know, I'd be watching those movies, and I would wonder why the villains did what they did. You know, why Maleficent got so angry that she didn't get invited to Aurora's christening in Sleeping Beauty. Why did, you know, the Wicked Queen from Snow White, you know, want to murder her daughter? And, you know, with the latest book that's out now, Cold Hearted, you know, why did Lady Tremaine turn Cinderella into a servant in her own home? And so, I mean, my background is in, like, theater. I went to school, you know, to teach drama and, you know, acting. And so I kind of take these characters on like if I were going to take them on you know, as a role to play. And I really try to like get into their heads, figure out like what their motivations are like. And I also like to try to approach it from like a psychological point of view. It's like, you know, I'm looking at their personalities, looking at the choices that they're making, the things that they're doing in the film. And then I back it up and, and really try to explore what led them down that particular path. That is such a cool angle. Like I was saying before, this is the eighth book in this villain series. I mean, you, you've mentioned some of the names that you've already tackled before. Where do you think Lady Tremaine actually ranks in that list of villains that you've already tackled? A lot of a lot of the Disney viewers see her as like the most wicked of all of the villains. And I think I think it's because she doesn't have any magical powers. You know, like a lot of mm-hmm. the villains in the Disney movies you know, have magic, you know, they're witches or they're fairies or, you know, what have you. I think it was really just like her and and Cruella de Vil. They're not from magical realms. And so that's one of the reasons they attribute it to. And I think also because, you know, she's an abusive mother. 
And the the way that I'm tackling the story is, you know, let's find out what happened to Lady Tremaine before she, you know, starts being like a horrible stepmother to Cinderella. And, you know, the story starts off in London. You know, she's from, you know, a non-magical place. She's happy. She's actually like a really cool person. And she meets Cinderella's father, who's visiting London from the magical realm. And she thinks that, you know, she's met her prince and that she's going to have her happily ever after. And, you know, she thinks she's going to go off to a magical land and have a beautiful life. And she gets there and she finds out that Cinderella's father is just using her for her fortune and, you know, and somebody to watch his daughter while he goes off on adventures, you know, and does things for the crown, essentially. So I, in terms of, like, how I think she ranks, I think she's pretty deplorable in the in the ab- abuse that she fl- inflicts upon, you know, not only Cinderella, but her own daughters, Anastasia and Drazilla. But after exploring, like, who she was and, and coming up with her story, I, I, I don't blame, you know, blame her for being angry. I wouldn't choose the path that she took. I, I, mm. I'm not going to advocate, you know, that she took it out, like, on her children but you can read the story and, and feel a little bit heartbroken for you know for her until she starts to go down that really evil path past the place of redemption. I don't feel like the story redeems her, but I certainly feel like it gives readers better insight as to you know how she ended up the way that she did. Totally agree with that. Now, I'm glad you mentioned that her daughters, too, because there's another aspect to the story worth talking about, because we also talk about the evil stepsisters when you think about Cinderella as well. So to what degree do you think this is considered their story in a way as well? It's very much their story, actually, because Lady Tremaine and Anastasia and Drizilla are, are still alive. You know, a lot of Disney villains aren't alive by the end of their story, mm-hmm. right? So I thought it would be cool to explore what happened to them after Cinderella left with her prince. And so the story actually starts off with Anastasia, Drizilla, and Lady Tremaine living in Cinderella's father's old chateau. But at this point, it's like crumbling, and it's covered in vines, and you know that cat that Lady Tremaine had, Lucifer? There's tons of little Lucifers, like, everywhere. It's kind of like Great Gardens, and a little bit like, you know, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations. You know, and Cinderella, who's a queen now, hears about, you know, the situation that her stepsisters are in, and she appeals to Fairy Godmother and asks Fairy Godmother to help them. But Fairy Godmother doesn't want to help Anastasia and Drizilla because she remembers them from when they were younger and all of the tomfoolery and, you know, just the horrible stuff that they did to Cinderella when she was younger. Mm -hmm. So... Fairy Godmother's sister, Nanny, has to try to talk Fairy Godmother into helping Anastasia and Drizella. And by doing so, they read Lady Tremaine's story in the Book of Fairy Tales and learn her story and come together as a fairy council to decide whether or not Anastasia and Drizella are worthy of help. And, and, and that's really the core of the entire series. There's a, a group of fairies on one side who feel that everybody deserves help. Everybody deserves a fairy godmother. And then there's fairy godmother, the three good fairies, who feel that only princesses should be helped. And, you know, really what it comes down to is if Lady Tremaine, you know, moved to the many kingdoms and, you know, she's in this abusive relationship with this horrible man. His name is Sir Richard, by the way, Cinderella's father. If she had a fairy godmother, if she had somebody looking after her, 
none of the stuff would have happened. She would have never put Cinderella in the situation in the situation that she is, and, and and that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, why is it that only the princesses get get help you know, from the from the fairies? Yeah, I love that part of the story. Actually, wait till you guys get a chance to read that little interesting tidbit now. Serena, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who's a Disney fan that doesn't love Cinderella, or at least sympathize with her. But at the same time, even as I was reading this, I thought to myself, do you feel like this story might actually have some readers looking at Cinderella a bit differently by things by the time things are all done? Well, it, it wasn't my intention to make Cinderella the bad guy in the story at all. I mean, Cinderella's young. She doesn't have a lot, you know, a lot of experience. She's a little bit naive. I don't think that she understood that what she was saying sometimes to her stepmother was hurtful. I mean, Cinderella was just telling her truth. And she was also dealing with a father who was very manipulative and just and just mean. So he was feeding her things to say to Lady Tremaine mm-hmm. that would be hurtful because he's just a, spite, a spiteful man. So, I mean, it, it, like I said, it's not my intention for people to maybe, you know, to villainize Cinderella by no means. But yes, I mean, they might look at her differently, but I also think that they'll see that, that, that she was just young. You know how kids are. You know, they speak the truth and they, and, and they don't realize sometimes that the truth could hurt somebody's feelings. No doubt about that. Now, we've seen this in a lot of other stories before where if you want, really want to know what's going on in a rich person's home, you go to the servants because they know everything. So talk about the role these characters play in actually evolving Lady Tremaine's story in this story. Right. I mean, Lady Tremaine, you know, is a lady and her, her husband, her original husband that passed away, Anastasia and Dizola's father, you know, he was, you know, in the House of Lords. You know, she she had, a you know, a great fortune. And, you know, so, of course, she had like a household full of servants. And the interesting thing about Lady Tremaine is that she had a really great relationship with her servants. You know, she was lonely after her first husband passed away, and, and they were the people who kept her company. And it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, though, as more challenging things in her life start to happen and, you know, life becomes a little bit harder, she becomes a little colder and a little bit more reserved. And But she's, she's doing that like with everybody, you know, by the end, you know, by the events that we see in the film, you know, Lady Tremaine's very stoic, you know, and, and she's pretty, she's pretty harsh. So it's kind of an interesting ju- juxtaposition here at the beginning, you know, in her life in London, being so friendly and, you know, even trying to like crack a smile out of her butler, who is like king of Stoic Island, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, there's no way he's ever going to laugh, but, you know, She's always like kind of joking with people and kind of doing what she can to to make life, you know, like good for her, for her servants. And that's not something that I think people would expect of Lady Lady Tremaine. Not (laughs) at all. Yeah. Not at all. But I love it. Quickly, Serena, before I let you go, I know you can't tell us what's next, but is there a particular villain that your fans and readers have been asking you to write that you haven't gotten a chance to do so yet? Oh, gosh, there's a huge list. I, I engage with my readers on social media quite a bit. And there there's so many there's so many characters that they'd like to see. The, the, the biggest ones right now, I think, are Captain Hook and Hades. Those, I, if, if I recall correctly, those seem to be the two that readers seem to request quite a bit that I haven't had a chance to write about yet. Well, you've got seven other books to read if you haven't already. Now eight, because Cold Hearted is available right now wherever books are sold from Disney Press. And I think you're going to love it because I know I certainly did. It's Serena Valentino. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. I hope you have a lovely day. And one of the great things about this book, Cold Hearted, is actually I would have never thought to tell 
Lady Tremaine's story from the beginning and the way that Serena actually crafts things, like she said, painting Lady Tremaine in such a different light in the beginning of this. It's almost like you want to, you heard the term night and day difference. It really is a night and day difference with Lady Tremaine and seeing how things evolve for her daughters as well. And again, pay attention to the servants in this story because I think that they play a key role in the story as well. And seeing the perspective of fairy godmothers from a different angle too, I thought was really, really neat. So a different kind of Cinderella story for sure when you pick up Cold Hearted from Disney Press wherever books are sold. Again, thanks to Serena Valentino for joining me to talk about Cold Hearted this week. Up next, there's plenty of great nerd news to get to, so we'll do that next. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. When at home makes you decide to stay home, it's time for nerd news. And what is no surprise to me whatsoever, I'm surprised that anybody is actually surprised by this, and that is that Marvel Studios and DC Films has decided once again to skip this year's Comic-Con at-home event, which is going to be happening at the end of July, a couple weeks from now. Now, this is the second time they've skipped at-home. I don't count New Mutants. I don't think anybody does. Last year, it was the only Marvel movie. It was actually at Comic-Con at-home. This is the second year that they're doing that. This is the second year it's being skipped by Marvel and DC Films. Now, let's think about this for a second. What exactly would they be going for? You would think that if anybody have more of a reason to go than, than not, it would be Marvel Studios. You'd think, right? But it's too late for Black Widow. The movie will have already been out for a couple weeks by then. It's too early for Shang-Chi. The only Marvel movie that you could really see that really kind of needs an event like Comic-Con at home is Eternals. Because I think that's the one that has the most mystery surrounding it. That's the one that needs the most explanation for Marvel fans. Now, granted... Shang-Chi is not a very well-known character either, but just the martial arts aspect of this movie alone is going to make a lot of people want to go see it. And the fact that the trailers that have already come out have really, really set the tone for what this movie is going to be. Whereas with Eternals, while the trailer was good, you look at it and you go, I'm still not sure exactly what to make of this. But with Shang-Chi, at least you know one thing that you're going to get, and that's top-notch martial arts and there's something to be said for that plus it's just visually striking and it has a and it, and after that whole abomination thing happened now you've got fans really interested from dc's perspective the only thing they really have coming up immediately that would need a little bit of hype is the suicide squad but quite frankly the social media hype alone for the suicide squad has already been enough that they don't really need comic-con at home to help it anymore. Plus, they've got the Peacemaker show that's filming right now, so you've got that going on. They've got a bunch of movies that are in production. Aquaman 2 production just started. You've got Black Adam in production. So you'd be pulling people away from working, essentially, in order to hype projects that aren't even going to be coming for another year plus other than the Suicide Squad, right? And the Batman, they, they don't really need the hype for that yet because guess what? They've got DC Fandom coming in October. That's when they're going to hype a lot of their own stuff. And that's what you've, we've got to start thinking about. Especially right now, has Marvel, have Marvel and DC learned that they're better off hyping things on their own? I don't think that that's something that we really need to worry about because the world is still in this state of getting back into the swing of things from the pandemic. I think once 
live events like Comic-Con really start to come back. And we're starting to see this slowly trickle in, but I don't think there's going to be any major, major convention until Dece until October with New York Comic-Con. And, and how major is that going to be? But, but at the same time, until these events start coming back in person and people can start coming out in droves for these things, then I'm not sure that the hype train is really necessary for a virtual event anymore because we're also in a state of not being starving for anything at this point because things are starting to come back slowly but surely. So whereas last year at this time, maybe we were more starving for Comic-Con at home than we are now. We're still going to consume it because we're still fans, right? But I don't think that there was this urgency to it like there is, like there was last year that there, that there is this year. I just don't think that there is. And that's not to say that that a lot of, like Netflix is going to go heavy on Comic-Con at home this year, but they've got a lot of projects that are coming out in the near future that could use some hype or some projects that they, they just, you know, they know they'll get chatter on about social media, like Lucifer, for example. You throw that panel on there because Netflix knows that's going to blow up social media no matter what they do. So it just it feels like DC and Marvel, on the movie side anyway, don't feel like they need that hype of Comic-Con at home. And, and I can't say that I argue a whole lot with that. Speaking of Marvel Studios, something that is a little bit interesting, Kevin Feige told The Hollywood Reporter recently, and that is that the long-term contracts for the Marvel Sim Cinematic Universe are now kind of a thing of the past. Now, we saw plenty of actors like Sebastian Stan, Stan sign that huge multi-appearance deal not too long, not, you know, several years ago. You saw like Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, pretty much any of the main Avengers cast, they signed up for the long-term. Samuel L. Jackson was another one. I think he had like, what, a 12-movie deal or 12-appearance deal. At some point, but Feige actually says that now it's more of a project to project, uh, you know, kind of thing and that they want people, quote, excited for the opportunity to do more things. Now, here's the th here's the thing about this. Here's my opinion on this. Why would you do that right now anyway? Because after Endgame, that was something you spent 10 years building and you were building it with your mainline characters characters that while there were still some risk involved there when you've got the core Avengers characters that are at the center of everything that you're doing the risk is not as big as it is right now so you can sign these actors to these long-term deals once you realize that yeah this is gonna work and you can go from there but now while there are some um, don't get me wrong there's again I just talked about it there's some interesting things coming from Marvel Studios, but at the same time, it's not as much of a slam dunk as what they had when they first started the MCU and what ended up being born as Marvel Studios. You have to see that, right? So while I think that we are looking forward to the future of some of these characters, let's say that in, in the Marvels, the upcoming Captain Marvel sequel, let's just say that Brie Larson just doesn't work out, right? There's plenty of fans that just do not like Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. Let's say Marvel Studios decides that's not working, they want to move forward. They can do that now if they want to. If they want to focus more on Miss Marvel and Kamala Khan, let's say Iman Vellani is just the, the one that fans gravitate towards more. Maybe you could go 
that route. Obviously, they're gonna, the, the popularity of of Scarlet Witch was couldn't couldn't have been seen immediately, right? So as popular as she is, maybe they decide to do more with her now. Now you can go into analyzing this as to okay, now that we're moving on from these core Avengers and maybe going to more towards a young Avengers route, something like that, maybe something entirely different. What are we going to do for the next 10 years? And is it going to be is it going to be these same faces for these 10 years like it was before? Not necessarily, I don't think. Because, again, I, I think that they realize it's going to be hard to duplicate that, so why would you want to? And I also think they're still trying to figure out what they want to do with the X-Men. I think that there's still very much a conversation. I know I saw the picture with with Feige and Hugh Jackman too. I don't know. I don't think that's as cut and dry as, as we think it is. I think there's way more to it than that. And it's just a picture, by the way. So I don't think they know what they want to do there yet. And that's fine, by the way. I think I think they should take their time. Why wouldn't you take your time at this point? You don't need to rush bringing the X-Men into Marvel Studios. But until you figure out what you want to do with that, it's hard to know how you want to push forward with the future because the future could be the X-Men, right? Or they could be a large part of it. But until you know exactly where you're going to go with that and how you're going to cast it and how you want to bring them in, these long-term deals don't make a whole lot of sense. So I think that this is really smart of them to kind of pump the brakes on that. And if you find somebody you love, yeah, you lock them up because you want to do that, right? If you know where the future is going to go. But I'm not sure they know exactly where they want to go super long-term like they did before. So they're going the smart route and doing a little bit more short-term and then seeing what the fan reaction is. So I think that's a really good move on the part of Marvel Studios. There's another Marvel Studios project that was hyped pretty good this week, and that is Marvel's What If, the first animated series, by the way, from Marvel Studios, which is hard to believe. We now know that's going to be coming on August the 11th to Disney+. Plus. We get a really good look at a trailer, finally, so we get to see The Watcher. It almost seems like The Watcher is going to be like the Crypt Keeper of Marvel's What If, right? Like every episode, Tales from the Crypt, you have the Crypt Keeper come up, tell you what the episode was going to be like. I feel like that's the role The Watcher is going to play in this Marvel's What If series. So we get to see Captain Carter. We get to see Peggy doing her thing. We get to see T'Challa as Star-Lord, the last Marvel performance from Chadwick Boseman. Oh, that's going to be an emotional time. I can already tell that, that that's really going to tug at the emotions for sure. But again, this is trying to capture the magic of what was the original What If comic book series, which was, I mean, hugely popular for obvious reasons, right? It's your chance to do something completely outside the box, completely outside of, of canon, unless you want to, you know, throw multiverse things in there. And maybe maybe if something becomes popular again, you try to bring it in. But it gives you a chance to tell these unique, different stories. Like seeing Killmonger save Tony Stark, I'm really interested to see where that goes. Because what is the what is going to be the ultimate steps for that? And that one was the one that stood out to me the most. And yeah, you've got obviously different characters in different costumes and things like that. We've got flashes of all of these different things that we're seeing that are kind of out of context, and it's hard to tell exactly what's going on but what we're learning is that this is going to be the thing where you can just kick back relax and enjoy it right you don't have to worry about how it's connected to what or where you can just you know what events have already transpired over the last 10 plus years and now you can look at it through a different lens and I think that's a really cool way 
to continue the content that we've already seen in more of a one-off fashion. And again, I think that this is something you could have multiple seasons of. I don't think What If is going anywhere anytime soon as long as this first season is successful. And of course, the animation is, is stunning. And why wouldn't it be? Because Marvel Studios is going to spare no expense for this thing. So I can't wait for August 11th and see what's going to be happening with Marvel's What If on Disney+. Plus. Going to keep going with the animation theme and talk about the Addams Family 2 animated trailer, which was which just came out this week. That movie, of course, going to be coming from MGM, United Artists, and Braun on October the 1st. I'm still keeping an eye on that date because I can't imagine they released that and Hotel Transylvania 4 on the same day, but I digress. So it's an Addams Family road trip. Basically, you got Wednesday and Pugsley. They're growing up a little bit. They don't really want to hang out with their family and their parents anymore because they're getting older. So Gomez says, you know, let's hit the road. And then you see the Adams family like motor home. And it's just, it's hilarious. It's this giant hunk of junk, basically. We don't really get to see the inside of it too much, but it looks like it's going to be like National Lampoon's Vacation meets Adams family type of vibe. But, you know, more of a, more of a family type uh, tilt to that since this is a animated movie that is for kids and adults, quite frankly. But, you know, you want to, Make sure it's okay for the kids to see. So, again, you get to see the the zany antics at all of these different, you know, Niagara Falls is in this. You've got the Grand Canyon in this as well. And family bonding at its finest, quite frankly, right? So, yeah, this one looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. October the 1st is the day for the Adams Family, too. And I, I can't wait. The first one was fun. I can't wait to see. I think this one has a chance to be even more fun. Disney Animation has announced their next project. It's Encanto, which is going to be coming out on November the 24th. And this is going to be following a Colombian family with a heavy Colombian influence, which was part of the press release that was sent out by Disney this week. And this is basically the story of a family of all, every member of this family in, in, in Casa Madrigal actually has some sort of ability. You see shapeshifters, you see super strength, Stuff like that. There's a lot of musical elements to this as well. And then you have Mirabelle, who's the only member of her family that doesn't have these exceptional abilities. However, she might be the family's last hope. And that is kind of the tagline of the movie. Now, you've got Stephanie Beatriz, who is Colombian, by the way, who's going to be the voice of Mirabelle. You've got another amazing cast. Diane Guerrero going to be part of this. Wilder Valderrama. Going to be in the, in this as well. Angie Cepeda and a whole bunch more. You want the full list of the cast, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You've got a 17-time Grammy and Latin Grammy award-winning singer, Carlos Vives, who's going, who's, who does the song in the trailer, Colombia, Me Encanto. And you've got Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's going to be handling the rest of the original music for this. So again, a heavy music influence. That is not a surprise. For a Disney animated project. And this just looks like it could be a, a, just another fun ride and a different kind of adventure that's really going to lean heavy into a culture that we don't really get to see on film very much, whether it be animation or live action, and give you a more, I would say, happier version of Colombian culture, right? Because what do we usually get to see when we see Colombia 
on any kind of movie or TV series. It's always like some sort of drug ring or something, right? Well, this is going to be something a little bit more fun, and maybe we learn a little bit more something about the music and the cultures behind Columbia, and we don't see it through that through that lens like we usually do. So I think that this is going to be a really cool project. I think the songs are going to be fun because they usually are with Walt Disney Animation. Let's see where this one takes its place in the pantheon of great Disney animated movies. Really quickly, I wanted to tell you about something that's going to be coming up in May of 2022. I know that seems like a long time away, but I talked about events starting to become more popular again. How about Stranger Things, The Experience, which is going to be coming in 2022. This Netflix is partnering up once again with Fever Events to bring you Stranger Things, The Experience. Remember, they they did the Stranger Things drive into experience last year in Los Angeles. This one going to be coming to New York and San Francisco. And it's basically an hour plus long experience where you're going to be able to go into the upside down. You'll be able to visit Hawkins Lab, Palace Arcade, and so many other locations from the Stranger Things series. And basically, you're going to be propelled into a parallel universe where you have to run the gauntlet of terrors lurking in the darkness and unlock the secret and unlock your secret powers to help save Hawkins, really. So it is an immersive experience it's going to be starting well actually tickets are on sale now by the way at strangerthings-experience.com there was a wait list though so i'm not sure how many tickets are available as me as i'm saying this but again this is a return to more normalcy and more events like this and this is something you would usually see at a san diego comic-con or a big convention right that is now going to be done as its own experience. And when you have a property like Stranger Things that is that popular, you have that ability to do that. And and again, will this coincide with the release of the upcoming season of Stranger Things? We don't know because we don't know when that release date is going to be. So the, you keep an eye on that May 2022 date and see if maybe that's when it's going to happen. So that that's another important thing to consider here too. But when you if you had a chance to step inside of your favorite show or a show that you really love, wouldn't you want to do it? Like when I had my uh, experience with Amazon, the Amazon experience at Comic-Con in 2019, this was when The Boys was still in its first season, by the way. So one of the things that we got to do is we got to step inside one of the locations from The Boys and be a part of, basically, remember the first episode when when they had to clean up the whole mess with Translucent at that electronic store? Well, that was the experience that we got to have, and we had to look for the clues and things like that as well. It was really fun. I got to do the same thing with Carnival Row and The Expanse, and now being able to have the chance to do the same with Stranger Things, I think would be really, really fun. So I'm looking forward to seeing exactly how cool this thing could be. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my amazing guest, the cast of Leverage Redemption, which is now streaming on IMDb TV, you've got Serena Valentino, whose novel Cold Hearted from Disney, the Disney Villain series is also available wherever books are sold. You want more from us? Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Make sure you subscribe to us, by the way, if you haven't yet, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.